Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Human Rights. This is Jim Dawes, and today I'll be talking to Lydwin Captains, author of the new book, Clan Cleansing in Somalia, The Ruinous Legacy of 1991. It's an important book on an important topic, which approaches the recent history of Somalia from a range of perspectives, including deep political history and contemporary poetry. Thanks for being here today, Lydwin. You're welcome. So the first question I wanted to ask is, is if you had... Three minutes. Let's say you're getting in an elevator with the person listening to this podcast, and you had three to five minutes to explain to them what this book is about, uh, what it's, what, it, what, why they should read it. What would you say to them? Well, what I would say is that um, Somalia has not had much attention since uh, Black Hawk Down, the ruinous event of 1993, which was in the middle of the US-UN intervention in Somalia. Uh, but what I'm bringing out is a very important episode of large-scale violence against civilians that I believe triggered the collapse not just of the regime of the military dictator Mohamed Siad Barre, but also the state. And we will probably come back to this, but this included communal violence by civilians who knew their victims intimately. And therefore, for more than that reason, but that is one of the reasons why I think that this particular episode of violence is so important and has not been publicly acknowledged. So that is, I think, um, and so the book deals with only two years, um, and I will probably uh, get a chance to talk to you more about why I stopped where I stopped and why I began where I began. But I think it is a, I think a, uh, an episode of violence that caused so much distrust and so much uh, uh, pain that, and because it, and has not been acknowledged, that it underlies the ongoing contestations in Somalia, I think in a very special and important way. So one of the things you do is you identify uh, 1991 and 1992, the clan cleansing, and you identify uh, it as a kind of key shift in the history of violence in Somalia. Can you say a bit more about what you mean by that? Yes, so um, this does get us, of course, into the history of Somalia. Um, One of the things that I I think uh, before I start, I would say maybe just like in Iraq under uh, Saddam Hussein, the military dictatorship that lasted from 1969 to 1991 is the cradle of of many of the enormous problems uh, that came after. And uh, to begin with, two very large-scale incidents or episodes, as you say, of large-scale violence against civilians were done by the state. They were state-sponsored in 79 to 81, and then in the Northwest, in Hargeisa and Burro in 1988. And that one uh, has received uh, much attention. Um, what One of the elements of the key shift is that until then, so by this um, cruel and violent military government, large-scale violence against civilians had been used against civilians. It associated, because of their clan background, with new armed fronts. 
So the first armed front was in 1978. The first large-scale violence against civilians by the government is against the so-called clansmen of this front, right? It's already, of course, a war crime, or actually not a war crime. It's a, um, well, it's large-scale violence against civilians uh, because these people may have liked that front in their heart, but they were not guilty of anything. The second time the government does this in 1988, and the scale is enormously much uh, uh, larger, is in 1988 in what is now uh, the Somaliland Republic, uh, self-proclaimed Somaliland Republic, uh, was because um, the government punished people of the clan background it associated with another armed uh, front, the Somali National Movement. The key shift comes that when Barre is kicked out of, expelled out of Mogadishu by another front, the United Somali Congress, that front actually splits into the middle. The, it, it welcomes into its um, leadership positions those high uh, officials and, and, and um, henchmen of the Barre regime that are of their clan. And it persecutes as Harida Haradiga Siad, as Barra leftovers, Siad leftovers, those henchmen of the Barra regime who are of the wrong clan. However, it also targets six, seven, eight clans who are associated with Barra's clan family. You see, so now a very, I don't know, you know, this, the, the, the number game, 25%, 30% of the civilians who have suffered from this military regime, like other Somalis, now become the target for terror warfare and expulsion from Mogadishu, from Beledwena, from central and south central Somalia, all the way to to Kismayo uh, and the Kenyan and Ethiopian uh, border. And that has not been talked about. So one of the things that you you mentioned in this respect is the, the, the label of genocide, um, and uh, how that may or may not apply here, and the problem of intent in, in thinking about this large-scale violence. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, you go kind of to the heart of, uh, of, of, the, of the difficult questions. Um, I have not used genocide. Now, we all know that the genocide definition of the UN is very problematic, and we were, I'm glad we have it, but it is problematic in this sense. On the one hand, it's too narrow, because it excludes, for example, groups that are targeted on the basis of their politics, like maybe in Latin America. And at the same time, it is too broad, because a good-sized ethnic riot in Bombay could almost f- fall under the UN uh, genocide definition. So I find that they're very... Uh, the reason I avoided it, because I worked a little bit with the, the def- definition of uh, Alexander Laban Hinton, who, who, inclu- you know, who includes at least the timeline, so how long, how big, and how far. So, so the, the range and the, 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 the geographical range and the temporal range and the numbers. So because I realized that the people who were uh, clan clans in Somalia were safe in Nairobi, from their enemies, I thought that I didn't want to use genocide. Maybe I also didn't want to put genocide between Somali parties, although I guess that people find clan clenching already really, really a harsh term. I find it a harsh term myself. I wouldn't have chosen it if I thought it was something else. 
So I used clan cleansing because I think because because I used the the is it the commission of experts uh, in the context of former Yugoslavia. They talk about using terror warfare to make an area homogeneous. And that is impossible in the whole area that was being clan-cleansed, but it was the intent in large parts of it, in particularly Mogadishu and the cities of, uh, you know, Beladwena, Baidaba, of, let's say, of the interurban area. And, um, and that is, you know, and then, and we really have no idea about the numbers, and we think tens of thousands, but, you know, the woman who couldn't take her asthma medicine and who died, and the people who died of hunger and thirst on the way, and the people who got stuck between the Somali border and uh, being allowed entrance in Kenya, the people who died because uh, they uh, capsized in over, uh, overcrowded boats, those are also victims of it. So the number is, uh, numbers, I do not want to give a number, but it is really, really large. Um, so... Intent, to begin with, of course, I wrote a book, uh, probably interdisciplinary, but I wrote it as a historian. And so when I argue, I argue as a historian and not as a lawyer. I'm not standing in front of the International Criminal Court, right? So that's one. So the reason why I believe in intent is actually a set of reasons. So first of all, it is the chronology of how events um, follow each other. Um, and I can give you, uh, I don't know whether I should give you many examples because I think for the non-Somalists it's going to be hard to follow. So you can say that partly you have a, 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 a chain of events and the chain of events shows that there are events of large-scale violence against civilians, for example, in a city called Galkayo, which is close to the Ethiopian boundary, where a whole group of Hiralial, they call them, of the the shaved heads, the elders, were abducted and never to be seen again because they could have been a peace party. And that city was not on the way of chasing, for example, uh, the, the dictator to the south. It is truly an excursion after they have already made their peace, after they have told Mogadishu they're going to be part of whatever international, uh, sorry, national reconciliation meetings need to be done, and yet they're attacked. And they're attacked by USC ID, general ID of the of, of Black Hawk Down fame or notoriety. So, so the 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 series, sorry, the way that the events follow each other is one reason. Another important reason actually comes uh, from a reading. Um, I was very inspired by a uh, scholar called Jacques Semelin, who has written uh, about atrocities, and I think it was something about the vocabulary of atrocities. It's an article whose title would not immediately make you think of intent. And he said two things. He said, you know, if you don't have a Nazi archive... You know, where you can prove how they planned it and what they did, uh, which you rarely have because um, things such as clan cleansing and genocides, often they are being concealed as they are being executed. And this is true for Somalia in 1991. So he said, you, you rarely have that and we don't have that for Somalia. He said, you have two other things. You have speech acts. And we have speech acts in Somalia. And I would love to talk a little bit more about narrative, since you are also a specialist in narrative later on. Uh, we have speech acts, which in context are meaningful. But 
again, not evidence because, you know, I could go and stand here in the streets of Wellesley and say something about what I'm going to do. And if it came to pass uh, in three weeks, you would still have to prove the connection between my speech act and and what happens. So what Semelin said that really, really was important to me. He said, if you don't have the Nazi archives, for example, what you may have is a pattern of events, a pattern of how things were done, how the cleansing took place. And uh, what I was, uh, what I noticed in the, in the, Interviews, in, let me put it differently, in the stories that had been told to me about what happened to people um, when they were targeted, when they were collected by young, the Somalis called the Morian. So these are kind of the urban, you know, the kids who are armed and who actually do a lot of the violence. Uh, these stories, which I had come to me actually before the project of the book, from hindsight, after I had written them down, showed me the pattern. The stories were about the moment that an individual realized that, one, they were targeted on the basis of their clan background. Two, it was not random chaos. It was not just popular anger. There were actually top or intermediate commanders who were supervising this youth. And... um, that was for them, and, and that was for them, and that was for me then also a, a, a evidence that there were patterns. There are re- many other reasons, and I would like to just, just say one more thing about those vignettes that came to me, because my project was largely not a memory project, which I actually think uh, would be best done by Somalis uh, from very many different backgrounds and from very honest intent. But those vignettes also showed me that many of those same individuals were saved by the very individual in whose name this clan cleansing was was taken place. So which is one of the reasons why we shouldn't talk about clan X did this to clans, you know, YZ, because we could not and we cannot distinguish if we do that between perpetrators, saviors, bystanders and inciters you know, organizers, if you wish. So intent for me, therefore, was the pattern that came out of the stories that came to me, uh, as well as uh, the way the events followed each other, or you could say the the atrocities or the episodes of atrocity followed each other. And there's a third one that I would like to mention to you. It is indirect, but I read a book by uh, Mark Nishanian, or maybe Mark Nishanian, which is called The Historiographic Perversion. And um, Nishanian talks about that he finds it almost obscene that the Armenians in the uh, genocide uh, that followed uh, or during and an, uh, following World War I have to retell their story again and again and again and it is never enough for the person who wants evidence. Huh? And so he says the historiographic perversion, at what point do we believe survivors? Now, I think that that is more relevant for the Armenians and more relevant for the Palestinians maybe in forty-eight, because um, there hasn't really been a memory project on the clan cleansing of 1981, but the vignettes that are included in the book, and there's only like 12 to 16 of them, I think should be taken seriously. 
And then, I yeah, sorry. If, if, you're mentioning these vignettes. For, for people who haven't read the book yet, this is a highly analytical book, but it's also one that, that gives you a very close-up personal view of some of this history. Would, would you be willing to, to, to share one or two of those vignettes in this podcast? So the vignettes are just a very small part of the book. It's less than 20 pages, I think. And they uh, tell a brief story of how victims of this clan cleansing told this story, actually, in most cases, not to me, but to a relative or to a uh, other person, uh, Somali person. And uh, I was either there or it came to me through a brother or through a, a sister or through. So one of the stories... Um, it came to me too, although it was also first told to family. And this is of an older uh, person who was a member of a manifesto group, which was a kind of a group of um, former civilian leaders um, and many others, but in this case, a, a former civilian leader who um, had twice was collected by these kind of young neighborhood thugs with a gun to his head. And... Um, Twice he was saved by a kid who recognized him, who says, uncle, what are they doing to you? Anyway, that is actually a vignette of how a, a member of the so-called perpetrating group, right, which is why I don't speak of perpetrating clans, but of armed fronts, in this case the USC, um, that, that individuals were targeted in the name of a clan, but saved by individuals of that clan. A, a better example of intent would be um, the story in the uh, vignette in the, the book is called What to Do with Aunt Miriam. And this is the story of a, a woman who was collected by neighborhood kids who knew her as Edo, which in this case, of course, is not really aunt, but a term used for a person of the other generation that you know well. So they take this person actually to uh, Osman Ato, who has been the financier of the USC for a long time. And the kids bring uh, her to his presence and he says, and they say, what should we do with Edo Marian? And of course, once you call somebody Edo, it's really hard for a leader to say, hey, get rid of Edo, I'm a killer. So he said, angrily, let her go. And before she is out of earshot, she hears him say to the kids, next time, don't bring a person like this to me. Take care of them on the spot. This is difficult material. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this project and your process of writing the book? So um, I had been really, you know, I don't want to say overworked at Wellesley, but we all have these moments that we have too much administrative work. So I had been uh, probably further from my research uh, than uh, ever before. And the last book had been about Somali popular culture, about that glorious period of independence, which was a really um, a, a groundswell of, of, of really Somali support for this independence that they had finally found. And so I'd done something on pop songs, popular songs, which were really iconic for that period and, and an authoritative place to talk about the hopes and dreams of Somalis of that time. Now, so when I then had to write two grant proposals, I thought, okay, let me look at what popular songs said about this horrible civil war. And very quickly, I realized that the popular songs were not an authoritative space for this violence, and that more authoritative was Somali poetry, and particularly a very prestigious kind of poetry done by men, for men almost, in the most prestigious male genres, 
in a way that could be pre- uh, performed in front of reconciliation meetings. So that could be performed in shared Somali space, public space, and not just, you know, for the clan only or for. And so when I began to read those, I found that they were amazing poems, amazing in the terms of the power of their description, amazing in the power of their analysis. Because these were not people who were going to blame clans, whole clans, for what happened. Uh, They did not attribute single agency to whole clans. But what they didn't do, they couldn't say who did what to whom. And so the first stage of my research, in a sense, ended with me falling off my chair in the middle of the night, realizing they're not saying who did what what to whom. And apparently in this space, they cannot. And then I said to myself, what do I really know? about what really happened Hmm. as the regime broke down and as then the state collapses. And that then made me into maybe a more conventional historian and I found every source I promised you I could find. And I'm still finding some things, including written in Somali, you know, Italian, uh, you mentioned it, news, spies, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the first chapter of the book that deals with a variety of mediations of, of representations that, of course, are also interventions that are literary. Then when I started to research, I, of course, I was totally aware that the cradle of all this was the military regime itself. And so chapter two is about that the increasingly violent nature of that regime, the increasingly violent clan divided rule of that regime, the undermining of the institutions of the state by this regime, um, and the two episodes of large-scale violence against civilians sponsored by this regime. And may I say, add to that, because this is so important from hindsight, that this was not a representative regime. So no clans were represented in this regime. But if you look at the individuals who played a role in this regime, there were individuals of all practically all clan backgrounds. So the state, you know, uh, as I argue in the book, although it was a state falling apart and and a violent uh, state, it was still shared by Somalis in very unequal and and, and and difficult ways, but still shared. So so uh, that part of the research is largely based on uh, secondary sources, uh, again, as many sources I could find, because two things, without the breakdown of the state, without the violence, the large-scale violence of civ- uh, against civilians perpetrated by the state, and without then when the, when the uh, dictator is expelled, the breakout of war. Who is it who said, Michael Mann, there is no genocide without war, right? So without the breakdown of law and order in Mogadishu, who knows whether this would have been possible. And so you have a horrible regime that becomes more and more violent. You have a front, armed front, you will see, that comes to Mogadishu and starts now singling out six, seven clans, civilians, and henchmen of the regime in the context of a breakdown of law and order. So, for example, one important um, aspect of this, uh, um, again, let me backtrack one minute. A civil war is always many civil wars, right? So from regional resource conflicts to even once it is happening, personal little vendettas, 
like you took my girlfriend when we were in high school to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Opportunity with impunity in Rwanda called genocide business. Of course, all of that then begins to play in making this possible. So I, I really contextualize it with the regime, chapter two, and then in chapter three, what is actually happening in the month leading up and following, you know, uh, the, the, the takeover of this client plans in the mortgage. You asked two important questions in your book that I'd like to ask you again here. First, what were the political goals of the military and political entrepreneurs who used clan-based violence? And second, what was it that propelled ordinary civilians to join in the militias and participate in this clan cleansing? All right. Yeah. So you you really ask for all the arguments in the book. It's always very hard, of course, to to uh, to do justice to the full argument. The political goals. I think um, the best. I think um, source on uh, the Barra regime is a dissertation in French that hasn't been published yet, but is available to Interlibrary Loan by Daniel Compagnon. And so for the regime, he argues that uh, the, the Barra dictator has the same goals all along, but that his methods become more and more violent. And so for the dictator, he wants to be the only one who's in charge. And because he um, he after the war against Ethiopia's position is very, very much weaker, he uses more and more violence in order to stay on top. The other thing he does really from the beginning, that he does the clan divide and rule. He will lift up, you know, uh, one group to put down another group. And he he's, has a total, has his wrists on kind of the the grievances and the stories that circulate in groups about how these guys got one up over us. Right and 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 this group and so he, the, the clan dividing rule of that regime is a tool for the dictator to stay on top. Add and I'm going to be facetious on purpose. Add a little bit of large scale violence against civilians to your clan dividing rule, and you get what Donald Donnan has said. You know, um, you harden those clan based identities like never before. Donald Dunham says, nothing will primordialize a group identity more, or harden, he means, than violence, than when you are targeted for violence in the name of, the, of that, the group you belong to. Right? So, so, that is, uh, for, so for Bada, it means stay on top, don't share with anybody, and since you can't take on everybody at the same time, keep everybody destabilized. He therefore becomes also an important cause of the clan cleansing because his own family which of course a a a small group within his clan is very much hated in Somalia when he begins to totally undermine and you know the institutions of the state and so because he himself wants to make sure that it's not his family and therefore his clan that gets targeted he also begins to um, try to organize the civilian population in two camps. The camp that later becomes, you know, um, the camp that is constructed in the gene- genealogical construct of Ir Nemo, Hawiya Nemo, and then the Darod Nemo. The Darod becomes the, uh, the target of the crime cancer campaign. He plays a role in that because he's trying to set them up too. 
right? So, and of course, the other thing is he, he doesn't believe Mogadishu when he, when he could have and before all of this happened. So it is to stay on top alone. The, the front that enters into Mogadishu, what was expected really until days before this uh, happens in Mogadishu by people in the diaspora, by many people in Mogadishu, that this person say, hey, we liberated the country from this dictator. Now let all armed fronts based and, and all people of all clan backgrounds, let's now rebuild together. We are free from this dictator. But what happens instead is that, you know, this part of the civilians are no longer are now associated with the regime, while this other part are not. And they've all been suffering. So what is then the goal of this front, or at least the leaders of this front? Two things. For one thing, you can say that they have been mobilizing the rural young men, well, not only young men, men in the, in the interior, with the narrative of all the wealth of Mogadishu belongs to these Darod. We're going to kick the dictator out of uh, the, the Darod dictator out of Mogadishu, and all the wealth of Mogadishu is going to be ours. So these guys are hard to stop. Yeah? And the people actually argue against intent will make that argument. And I actually agree with them that this is one thing that happened. But the other thing is, why did the leader of USCID, why did he not open it up to the other armed fronts? He was on top. He would have been on top. So what is he thinking? He wants the, to, to be a Bara-like, a, a dictator-like person, but he's not willing to compete with the other armed fronts, most of which were much longer established than his front. Right? He even competes with USC Mogadishu, the, the leader of the other branch of his army that actually had been in Mogadishu all the time as he was approaching from, from uh, Ethiopia. So he just really doesn't want to include those people too, we find out later. So this is so amazingly, uh, well, it is, it is horrific, but it's also really interesting because once you organize once, you're, once you don't have a cause and once you organize yourself on the basis of who is the right clan, you cannot invite people on board anymore, right? Like if I'm a Maoist and I'm trying to persuade the rural population to join me, they can at least say they're Maoist and they might be part of my group. But if I say I'm organizing people of these clans, Right to attack people of those clans, then of course the people of those clans can no longer join. They can only be expelled. They can only, or they can, in the areas that their majority maybe be what the Somalis called raia, yeah, subjects. And so, uh, but the goal is to be alone on the top without competing with the leaders of the other armed fronts, uh, even with. Uh, you know, you're with, with the leader of UIC Mogadishu, United Somali Front, sorry, USC Mogadishu, which is the same uh, front. Mm. So I'm going to try to answer the questions about why the, the actual perpetrators right. do what they do. And so I think what, uh, what the book tries to do is to create as full a context as possible um, in the factors that it mentions. So the breakdown of the state in different parts of Somalia, regional conflicts over resources, um, 
personal vendettas, opportunity with impunity, the breakdown of law and order. So the the context of something like clan cleansing is multidimensional and um, includes war. But I think what the book um, uh, brings that is new is what were the discursive triggers? How were the perpetrators at that moment when it mattered persuaded to participate in terror warfare and expulsion? And uh, here I am using the concept of somebody called Ben Lieberman, who has written about former Yugoslavia. And he coined the, con- the concept of mythical, he calls it national, I'm going to call it mythical group hate narrative. In Somali context, it will be mythical clan hate narrative. And I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about what I mean with that and then say why this is relevant to Somali. So Somalis have a long history. And I think that what feeds into clan hate narratives, so hate narratives that people talk about other clans, uh, speak, uh, 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 narrate about other clans, has a lot to do with differential elite formation. So what did the colonial, what were the colonial policies towards different groups in Somalia? And also historical contingency. Who happened to be the wireless boy for the British military administration and learned some English, right? So some of this was policy and some of this was historical contingency. And so these hate narratives are about grievances of the past. And many groups have reasons for grievances of the past. Probably most groups have grievances about the past. The question is, how do they get processed into a hate narrative? And they get processed. So these hate narratives are about grievances. And they are, the first correct characteristic you can say is, they are based on fact and fiction. There's enough fact to make people really believe them. But they're fictional because they get spun now into a little charge. And so one is they're about grievances. Two is they are being presented. So they're, they're based on the past and facts and fiction. They are being presented as about the core of this group identity. Wiping out other identities that people have in that group, like neighbors and playing soccer together or working together or living together in Mogadishu and all that, being even interrelated by marriage. Yeah? This hate narrative spins now this story as this is about the core of our group. It also, if we don't act now, our group will not be powerful at the hour of victory. If we don't act now, they will get the better of us once again. That's the mythical part. So the mythical part is about a particular spinning of the past, right? That has some fact, but a lot of fiction. And then the mythical part of it is that it spins this past and this centrality to identity in such a way that the mythical time of the group past and what is needed for the group present overwhelms everyday time, everyday relations, the fact that we're neighbors, the fact that we drink coffee together, the fact that yesterday you had the key to my house, remember from former Yugoslavia, right? And so it is this kind of mythical hate narrative that is based on fact and fiction that's spun in this Somali context into very persuasive, and by the way, not only for uneducated rural folks or uneducated 
kids from the urban bidonville or slums, but also for intellectuals, for middle-class people who actually came to look for their friends by name. Right? So that, that hate narrative, that becomes a discursive trigger in a situation that is multi-level and that has truly, you know, um, breakdown of the state, lack of salary. I mean, all the things that, that I try to explain in the book and that I probably cannot fully uh, list here. Given this history of clan cleansing and, and given what you understand about the logic of clans in Somalia, tell, tell us a bit about your expectations about how this is working out now and, and how it will work out in the near term future in Somalia. So this is uh, so in a sense, before I explain to you how I got to the project through the literature, and then I explained that when I found out that the prestigious poets couldn't say who did what to whom, that then I did the second part of the project was to document this, to go and document it as a historian, not as a lawyer, and to um, describe really empirically how it happened. Of course, also analytically. But the third part, once I did that, I said to myself, oh my God, how am I going to take, how am I going to bring this in the present and not make things worse? Or how? what could I do? On the one hand, I really think the story needs to be told. Uh, but how could I tell it in such a way that if people really are open to reading this and to thinking about this, I would not be redrawing the lines, the same battle lines, now, you know, with the pen. And so the whole third part of the project then actually became trying to read up of all the people who had written about this, whether it's particular, actually, I must say, I... Uh, I, I, I drew on the literature on Rwanda and former Yugoslavia, which were the most recent examples of large-scale violence. And so I have three, I think, um, elements of my approach that I tried to bring out and that I keep repeating also to Somalis, you know. And one is that, please do not attribute single agency to clans. Clans did not kill People killed in the name of clan. That's a big difference because if you don't make that difference, the organizers and inciters, the perpetrators, the bystanders and the saviors cannot be distinguished. And this, I think, Somalis understand, you know, uh, the victims understand that certainly. One, having said that, and you probably, many of you will remember the book by uh, Mahmoud Mamnani, When Victims Become Killers, that's not attribute single agency to clans. At the same time, try to understand why so many people flocked to the banner of clan and killed in the name of clan. And I have tried to do that throughout the book, both in the material circumstances and with the discursive triggers, the mythical hate narratives that I just talked about. But So that's one. Two, then, I said, please, can we not take for granted those mythical hate narratives? Because they are actually still circulating. And as long as we keep repeating those as truth, then we will keep thinking the way the clan clans are thought. That's the second one. The third one then is what I already in a sense said, uh, said to you, make clan matter and not matter at the same time. We know this about race. We know this about sex or gender, if people are more used to that term. Right? So let me use the example of, uh, of, of women. Women know they don't want to be reduced to womanhood, to their sex, to their gender. And at the same time, they know they have to keep 
their eyes on the sexism out there. And they have to realize that sexism is an incredible, powerful tool to put them down. So that was um, the, the the third one, make land matter and, and not matter at the same time. So that's one thing that I've tried to do. The other thing that we haven't talked about, Jim, is that I tried to, that I do in the book. Not only is there a whole chapter about Barra and how the clan clansion would not have been thinkable without the actions of the Barra regime, I also have, and it makes really for a long and empirical chapter, chapter three, once the clan cleansing gets going, there is, there are a number of clan-based militias that join in the clan cleansing. And there is therefore immediately what I call a war of the militias. A war of the militias becomes a competition between warlords of all kinds, also the warlords who now are reorganizing militias from among the victims of the clan cleansing, and they fight each other. The Darod-based comebacks, so some of the henchmen of the, of the Barra regime now recruit militias from among the victims who survive. And they come back to Mogadishu, committing atrocities against civilians. Right? And I document those too. They do not get as much space because nobody has denied those. And they have been documented to some extent. I'm not saying that those victims are less, less important than the victims of the clan cleansing. What I'm trying to show is that there is a connection between them and there is one that hasn't been talked about. But I really do document, therefore, um, the, that part of, the, of civil war violence that is not only done by the perpetrators of the clan cleansers, but is done by those who organize the victims of the clan cleansers and come back and try to come back to Mogadishu. You see, so that is also, if you look at the narrative then, that there is, there is balance there. Yeah? I'm not saying like, hey, I don't call you a clan, but I only document your violence. No. So, um, so one thing that I also tried to do in the book, and actually it explains why I stop in December 1992. So I, I really um, start with the Barra regime, but I start the story when the violence breaks out in Mogadishu in June 89. And I take just the story up to December 1992. Why do I do that? I'm trying to prove that clan and clan hatred is an instrument for mobilization, and therefore a powerful one that that does engage a popular mindset and manipulates a popular mindset. So I stop in 1992 because by that time, if the USC, the front that marched on Mogadishu and, and expelled uh, 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 Barra from Mogadishu, was based on a clan alliance that was it, that was genealogically constructed as Hawiya Nemo, or Irrenimo, the Hawiye clan, or Irrenimo, the brings in a few more clans into that level of genealogical descent, if you wish. You see that breakdown in Mogadishu in November, really in April, but in November uh, 1991. The two branches of this uh, United Somali Congress um, actually start a war. And people believe that 14,000 people were killed. As these people who had fought in the name of a particular clan construct, now that clan construct implodes and militias fight in the name of a sub 
form of that construct, right? So it's not in the end about clan, right? It's how you use it for power. Now, among the victims of the clan cleansing, which include organizers which were henchmen of the Baro regime, who have now, who struck back in the name of a construct of Darod Nimo, the Darod clan family, in December 1990, in December 1992, which is just as the Belgians have already landed in Kismayo or are about to land in Kismayo, which is the southern city, and the U.S. has already landed in Mogadishu, a Darod-based warlord kills 120 or more civilian elders who also belong to one of the clans of the Darod clan family. So that clan construct also implodes because warlords are competing with each other and kill civilians in the name of a subconstruct, right? And this ending in Kismayo is is so um, significant, I think, because I see it as a stage in the clan cleansing because the Aidit, uh, the head of the USC, had just visited Kismayo the night before. I see it as a stage in warlord violence where they use clan-based militias to compete with each other and use violence against civilians to get one up over each other. And finally, and I think this is so important to the book, it shows that warlords, when they used large-scale violence against civilians, were always also destroying alternatives to their own projects. Yeah, once you have provoked or you have caused large-scale violence against civilians, how are people? If somebody killed for you, how is she going to step away from you? And if somebody was killed by you because of who they are, how are they now going to look for a peaceful? You know, it takes a long time then for them to find a peaceful alternative. So in Kismayo, you know, there were 120 middle-class elders who would have been the peace party, who would have been the, the, the preferred uh, discussion partners for the Belgians and for the U.S. if they, once they landed, were now wiped out. And I'll end with an anecdote. Robert Oakley, who was, of course, the, uh, the U.S. ambassador, um, who was the spokesman, special envoy of Bill Clinton. Sorry, it is Bush, George Bush at that time. You know, they asked him, he said, Ambassador Oakley, what are you going to do about this large-scale violence, um, you know, the killing of all these civilian middle-class elders in Kismayo? He said, well, sorry, guys, uh, this is not part of our mandate um, because uh, this is not what the Security Council asked the UN-US intervention to do. And then he says, really, I don't know, either stupidly or cynically, by the way, don't worry, we will develop an alternative civilian leadership. And that leadership, of course, has just been wiped out in that city. So, you see, I really try to not just tell the story of one uh, clan-based militia uh, um, conducting a clan cleansing. I really try to give a wider context. Now, my final comment then, how is this falling in the Somali community? I think that from the sides of the victims, they are grateful it's in the open. And when I asked them, but why did so few of you write about it? I think that they were waiting for effective speech. When they were kicked out, when they ended up in the refugee camps, 
By November, so this happens in December, January, March, May, right? By November, this violence is happening between two branches of the USC and Mogadishu. And all kind of other Somalis also end up in the refugee camps. So whose shoulders are they going to cry? My violence is more important than their violence. They were busy surviving. They were busy building up their life. And to some extent, they feel that their survival is their talking back. And they always talk about our houses in Mogadishu. Right. Um, so, yes. And sometimes I think uh, what I uh, so 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 they are grateful and they are happy and they have begun their own ways of commemorating and of working with this that are actually not attached to my book. Among the people who associate themselves by descent with the USC, I think it's very hard for this to be raised Partly because I think it has been actively concealed also, by the way, Jim, by very our very colleagues in the field and some of people you know very well. And I think our people who listen to this program know well. And I initially was very upset about this. And then I realized this is what civil wars do. Right. So when I get some hate mail, when I get some things on the website that say I'm simply biased and I'm only against this clan, if you read a book, I think that 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 i did i wrote it better than that whether i wrote it well enough is always a question right but it is not written as you know another outsider taking the side of one particular group of somali which as you know is so easy to do in this field but much harder to do in 2013 so um i hope that it will start a real conversation and not just sniping and trying to put me down or to put a book down and that at some point people you know what i've said to people is when somalis are ready to talk about it mine is just a history book it cannot be better than the sources it uses and so, but when somebody sit down to talk about it, I hope the book will sit in the corner of that table someplace, because all narratives need to be on the table when we talk about the future. But not all narratives are equally valid about the past. And that is where I hope the book for the future maybe could could play some uh, some role. Thank I, you. I think it will. This is uh, important work. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. 